0: All right, today I am talking with Professor Elizabeth Fenn, the Walter and Lucene Driscoll Professor of Western American History at the University of Colorado Boulder. Fenn authored a book, Pox Americana, which talked about a smallpox epidemic that took place during the American Revolution. Uh, professor Fenn, thank you for talking to us today.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: All right, so as a professor of history and as a historian, what does your work usually include?
1: Well I am a uh, scholar of early America um the early west and of the history of epidemic disease and so my teaching usually uh, embraces big survey classes of you know American history up through the civil war I teach a, an undergraduate class on the history of uh, epidemic disease in the United States. I have just designed a uh, a new syllabus on the global history of epidemics. But then I also do uh, courses, more familiar courses, I suppose, um, things like the history of the American Revolution, colonial America, um, and other classes along those lines.
0: With that course in epidemics, uh, what do you plan to cover in that course? What kind of material are you planning on covering?
1: Gosh, I went back and forth and as I organized it starting off trying to do it assiduously, chronologically, and then I uh, eventually decided to organize it through the diseases themselves. Um, so the, the plan is to Start really, with the way peoples and pestilence evolved together, if that makes any sense um, yeah and obviously, microbes and human beings have lived together over well, millennia um but the dawn of agriculture, the advent of agriculture roughly ten thousand years ago was a particularly important development. Um, And that's the case because it put put human beings and non-human domesticated animals in close long-term proximity so that microbes could readily cross the so-called species barrier. And it also allowed for the accumulation and storage of food, of grain in particular, so that cities with very dense human populations could develop, and that, of course, allowed infections to evolve um, and, and circulate more effectively, and it, and it really allowed for epidemics to happen. So we will uh, we will start there, and then run through a whole series of um, infectious contagions. Uh, in a semi-chronological fashion, so we'll talk about some of the ancient um, plagues, uh, leprosy or Hansen's disease. Uh, we'll talk about plague itself, uh, which is a disease that people are learning a whole lot about these days through ancient DNA. Um, we're, we're becoming able to identify um, plagues that circulated well before the famous Black Death, Um And then we'll move on to smallpox, which is my particular area of expertise. You know, smallpox stands out as the only human disease that we have uh, eradicated from the world. And, of course, smallpox had horrific effects on uh, Native peoples in the Americas in the aftermath of Christopher Columbus's voyage. Um, Thereafter, we'll move to syphilis, which is also kind of a... Controversial disease. We don't. We're, we're not exactly clear on what its origins were. Um, yellow fever and malaria, which were all you know, diseases that were associated with uh, European expansion. Um, so that uh, they they were all, like smallpox. They were transmitted to the Americas with European and African um, colonization of the Americas. But they also um, Impeded uh, European colonization of the Southern Hemisphere, um, and uh, because Europeans succumbed in droves you know, to to yellow fever and malaria when they tried to colonize Africa and India, um, we'll also go on and talk about uh, illnesses. Well, we'll talk about theories of disease, miasmas, humoral theories, um, the evolution of sanitation, cholera, uh, the emergence of of germ theory, um, tuberculosis, which was kind of a chronic disease. In fact, people didn't even understand it was contagious. They believed it was hereditary for many years. Um I'm also going to address uh, some the human repercussions of some non-human diseases, uh, including uh, an illness called Rinderpest, which infected uh, cattle um, and was quite devastating in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And I mentioned we'll get to influenza, HIV and AIDS, uh, the blowback in terms of attempts at eradicating diseases and antibiotic resistance, and finally, you know, emerging and re-emerging diseases um, such as the uh, current SARS coronavirus too.
0: Uh, You mentioned a little while earlier about um, the rise of society and agriculture alongside the rise Diseases. Would you say that um, these diseases and the potential for epidemics kind of rose with that rise in, so, in uh, society?
1: Yes. Yes, I, I, um, I agree with uh, the controversial scholar um, whom I actually like a, a quite a bit. Now, Jared Diamond, you've pro- you're probably familiar with his Guns, Germs and Steel, that uh, in many respects, um, the advent of agriculture was... A, a disaster for human beings, uh, and it's one of the reasons for that is is that it allowed for um, epidemic diseases to to happen.
0: So, with that, we have your book *Pox Americana* um, and this smallpox epidemic that um, went through the Americas in the time of the Revolutionary War. Um, so, first of all, what inspired you to really kind of start working with epidemics and to write Pox Americana?
1: Well, I'll give you the short version because the longer version would entail quite a bit of autobiography. But the short version is that I uh, I read a novel, a novel called The Horseman on the Roof by a Frenchman named Joan Giano. I believe The Horseman on the Roof was. Published initially in 1952, I think you could double-check me on that. Um, and I, I read it in translation. I read it in English. And the Horseman on the Roof is is beautiful. It's a story of an Italian nobleman finding his way home through Provence in France in the midst of a 19th century cholera epidemic. Uh, I, I read this book at a time when I was not doing academic work, and it blew me away. I was just uh, so taken with Giono's capacity to write something beautiful about something terrible, and uh, that really triggered my interest in writing about this smallpox epidemic, which I had been vaguely aware of thanks to some undergraduate work I had done, and that it, it... um, actually catalyzed me to return to graduate school. I had left and uh, and write the PhD dissertation that became that book, Pax Americana.
0: Interesting. So what was the process from taking it to that thesis uh, to a novel-like? I mean, not a novel, a book-like?
1: Um, I had written my PhD dissertation as a book, essentially. Um, And luckily I had an advisor who encouraged me to do that. So uh, I thought of my audience as I wrote the PhD dissertation as, uh, you know, educated lay readers, you could say, as well as fellow academics. Um, And as a consequence of that, uh, the revision from dissertation to book was relatively negligible. For me, I believe I, you know, I think I'm a, I finished my PhD in 1999, published the book in 2001. Um, so I, I did not change it too much. The one thing I did was add opening vignettes to every chapter as kind of a, a hook to to grab um, more of a popular reader. Uh, I thought that would make it a little bit more accessible um, by doing that.
0: So. In the book, it looks into the effects of this smallpox epidemic. Uh, what were some of the major effects that you found?
1: Wow. Well, let me begin with a bit of background, which is to say that uh, the epidemic that I write about um, occurred from 1775 to 1782, and it swept all of North America in those years. Uh, and in fact, uh, swept much of South America too, although I you know, I make a gesture to it, but I don't write about it. That's another book that somebody needs to write. Um, so this is a massive, massive smallpox epidemic that swept the entire continent and remade the continent in, in many ways. Um, as you mentioned, those are almost exactly the years of the American Revolution. So early in the revolution, it became quite clear that uh, smallpox was a a real danger to George Washington and his continental troops. Uh, the reason for that is that by this time, by the mid to late uh, 1700s, smallpox still had not become endemic in the Americas. When a disease is endemic, it means it's constantly present in background, kind of like what's happening with coronavirus today. I mean, my my concern about coronavirus is that it's going to become an endemic disease. Um, but so smallpox was not endemic in the Americas. Uh, what this meant was that uh, anybody born and raised in the Americas didn't matter if you were. African-American, Native American, European-American, if you were born and raised in the Americas, odds were that you would reach adulthood and never have encountered smallpox. Um, Smallpox is a disease that confers complete immunity once you've had it. Uh, So what this meant was that... uh, The American population, and again, regardless of race, ethnicity, and so on, was very vulnerable to smallpox. Nobody to speak of had acquired immunity. Um, This was not the case in Europe. In Europe, smallpox was endemic. So what this meant was that when the American Revolution erupted, most of the troops on the American side – had never had smallpox and were vulnerable to it. They had no acquired immunity. British troops, on the other hand, most of whom had encountered smallpox in childhood, had lived through the disease and thus had acquired immunity, um, British troops were far less vulnerable to the disease. So in the early encounters in the American Revolution, in uh, an episode known as the the Siege of Quebec it was actually an attempt to bring Canada, the, the 14th colony, into the Revolution. Um, American troops were devastated by smallpox. Um, they were threatened by smallpox during the Siege of Boston, 1775 1776. Um, they were uh, threatened by smallpox um, in Virginia as well um, throughout the American Revolution. Um, and eventually, George Washington in what I think was a really important decision, um, decided to immunize his his troops against the disease. And that's a that's a process we can talk about at some length too.
0: How did that immunization process work?
1: So the um technique that was used before the year seventeen ninety six was something called variolation. Um the smallpox virus is called variola. There are actually two um, kinds of variola, variola major, variola minor, and as those names suggest, variola major was more severe. Um, but So the technique of variolation actually came to Europe, to the Western world, um, by way of Asia and Africa. That's one of those realms in which Asia and Africa were well ahead of Europeans. In the Americas, um, there was an interesting episode in 1721 in Boston where a famous Puritan minister named Cotton Mather, some of your listeners may have heard of him, actually was a slave owner. and He had an enslaved African named Onesimus. And when you think about it, it, you'll understand that an enslaved person who had had smallpox and therefore had garnered immunity was more valuable than an enslaved person who had not had smallpox and might thus contract it and die. Um, So at any rate, Cotton Mather asked Onesimus. He said, Onesimus, have you ever had smallpox? And Onesimus looked at Mather and says, yes and no and then Onesimus went on to describe to this Puritan minister how his father in West Africa when he was a little boy had put him through variolation and what variolation involved was taking pustular matter um, live material of smallpox from the smallpox sores you know, smallpox covers you with 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 pox uh, Mark with, with, with the pustules. Said, variolation involves taking pustular matter from a live smallpox case and implanting it into an incision or an abrasion in your skin. And that's what Onesimus's father had done to him when he was a little boy. Um, he came down with a mild case of smallpox, and for some reason, variolated smallpox is less severe It still has like a 5% case fatality rate. Um, um, But you you go through the disease and you acquire immunity for the rest of your life. Um, So when George Washington decided to immunize his troops, um, what he put them through was variolation. Um, And when you're variolated, you you come down with a mild case of smallpox. And a mild case of smallpox is not something to be scoffed at. You know, as I said, you know, even even variolated or it's sometimes called inoculated smallpox had like a, about a five percent case fatality rate. You know, you come down with this disease, you are sick, you're covered, with, you know, you have the pustules, you're sick for a month. Um, but uh, it was a very important decision for Washington and for the Continental troops. Uh, and And it pretty well prevented smallpox from from circulating through the continental army after seventeen seventy eight now down the road, you know vaccination was developed in seventeen ninety six and you know smallpox was actually the origin of of that practice too, which we're we're all so familiar with today um but what was used during the Revolutionary War was variolation, was you know actually infecting somebody with smallpox in order to confer immunity.
0: So it was kind of a precursor to the modern vaccine or the modern vaccination process.
1: It was exactly that. It was a precursor to the modern vaccination process. Now the modern vaccination process, or an early variant of it, came about not long after the American Revolution in 1796 um and it was developed by a british physician an english physician named edward jenner and he had observed that uh, milkmaids you know women who milked cows tended not to get smallpox and he hypothesized that it might have been their exposure to cowpox so jenner hypothesized That exposure to cowpox, a cattle disease um, in the same family of diseases as smallpox, although Jenner couldn't have known that, but that exposure to cowpox, he hypothesized, might confer immunity to smallpox in these milkmaids. Um, And he actually carried out an experiment that would never get past an IRB board today, Um, he found a a seven-year-old boy, a little boy named James Phipps, and I guess he got his mother's permission. Um, And he basically implanted cowpox material into the flesh of James Phipps, this little boy. And as you would guess, James Phipps broke out in a mild little cowpox rash. Went through it just fine. And after he was all healed up, uh, Edward Jenner tried to infect James Phipps with smallpox, and he could not get the infection to take. Um, Cowpox is a very minor disease compared to smallpox. And, you know, there are British historians who've written about this moment, and they say, you know, it was as if an angel's trumpet sounded. Uh, that you know this this discovery that cowpox could confer confer immunity to smallpox, and people adopted it all around the world um, very very quickly because smallpox was such a horrific disease. I mean, smallpox typically smallpox has a thirty eight percent case fatality rate. You know that makes that makes coronavirus look like nothing. Um, and so cowpox vaccination. In fact, that's the the root of the word, vaccination. You know, if you speak Spanish, for example, you know that word vaca is cow? That's vaccination. That's where we get that word. I'm sure it's, you know, it's the Latin. Um, you know, and now we, now we use vaccination day in and day out, and we're all hoping for a coronavirus vaccine.
0: So with this epidemic, um, with studying it, what would you say are the lessons that we could learn from it? Um, what do you think the biggest takeaways from this epidemic were?
1: Oh, um, well, I, at the meta level, um, epidemic disease remakes our world and has done so for millennia. Um you know not just talking about smallpox but even like the black death you know in back in in the 1340s um remade europe you know it it, it killed half of europe's population and historians have have argued quite convincingly you know created the renaissance and created the downfall of and then eventually the the birth of global capitalism. Um, In the American context, in in, in the case of uh, smallpox, even before the epidemic that I write about, smallpox really did the dirty work of colonization for Europeans. Um, It was an entirely new infection, for native peoples and the case fatality rates and overall mortality in the early epidemics that swept native peoples um, was just horrific. And uh, the smallpox in conjunction with some other imported diseases um, really made colonization much easier. And I would say makes native resistance to colonization all the more remarkable. Now when we get to the smallpox epidemic that occurred in, in the years of the revolutionary war um initially in the war the disease really favored the british substantially um then washington made that important decision to immunize his army and uh he and his troops were far less affected by it thereafter he by the way had actually had smallpox much earlier in 1752 but the, the point being that he knew how, how devastating this disease could be um, now Washington immunized his troops but African Americans uh, were largely vulnerable to the disease so that uh, unless they had been variolated by their owners Um, And during the Revolutionary War, many African-Americans fled to the British because the British actually offered many uh, enslaved people freedom if they would come to their side during the war. And so uh, British troops weren't that vulnerable to the disease. American troops later in the war were not that vulnerable to the disease. But the African-Americans who fled to the British were devastated by it. Um, and there's even some evidence to indicate that the british may have tried to use infected african americans um in an attempt to uh to spread smallpox more widely in um the american population that was fighting against them um, further west here where you know where we are in colorado new mexico um the the epidemic Really rearranged life on the northern plains and on the central plains. Uh, it conveyed a, a, an important advantage to nomadic peoples. Lakotas, for example, um, had a much easier time of it during this disease than some of the more settled village peoples did. And you can think of, you, you can understand why um, Lak- Lakotas, you know, Blackfeet, uh, or um, and, uh, and other nomadic peoples. Traveled around in smaller bands. They weren't in those dense agricultural towns that that, that some of the village peoples occupied. Peoples like Mandans and Hidatsas and the tribes. Uh, and in the aftermath of this epidemic of 1775 to 1782, um, peoples like the Lakotas and Cheyennes and and uh, Blackfeet. Really achieved a prominence on the on the plains that they hadn't had before. Um, So it 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 really rearranged things all across the continent.
0: Would you say that um, so with those kind of nomadic peoples? Would you say that uh, close proximity in cities um, was something that they were able to avoid? And would you say that the close proximity of cities um, kind of increased the threat of disease?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and this is something we're seeing today. Uh, It's why New York City is such a a hot zone for coronavirus. Um, So, you know, for anything that's infectious, you know, city life can be problematic. Um, And obviously, you know, different diseases uh, spread through different mechanisms. You know, a disease like malaria or yellow fever requires a mosquito vector. Um, but urban areas often have uh little potted plants and you know little pools of water where mosquitoes uh it can thrive so you know it 's always complicated uh, by the the exact mechanism um of transmission but for things like smallpox or cholera you know which is transmissible through uh, feces and food and bad sanitation um urban environments are, are can be especially dangerous which isn't to say that uh that rural environments are safe you know even uh you know, cholera can be especially dangerous in cities but uh there was a a, a cholera epidemic that uh, swept much of North America in 1849 you might recognize that as the uh, as the one of the, the beginning of the gold rush in California um here in Colorado The Platte River was infected with cholera, so travelers on the overland trail um, traveling along the the Platte River uh, acquired cholera, and there are many cholera graves associated with the gold rush travelers along the overland trail. So, So yes, cities are more dangerous, but that doesn't exempt rural populations or more nomadic peoples.
0: Would you say that looking at different epidemics throughout history, have you noticed any other kinds of commonalities, any shared behaviors in people, any shared um, events or any kind of procedures? Is there anything that you've seen that sticks out with every epidemic? Not every, but most of the epidemics you've
1: seen. Well, sure. I mean, every epidemic uh, just about (laughs) um, generates a uh, uh, level of fear and panic if people are aware of its uh, its arrival. Um, and, and I would say infections, uh, a, a colleague, uh, let me back up and say, a colleague named, named Margaret Humphreys, who's a mar- marvelous uh, historian of medicine, she's also an MD, um, has noted that diseases that travel are particularly frightening to people. Um, as opposed to a disease like malaria that flares up in the same place every summer thanks to the mosquitoes perhaps um you know multiplying in the swamps nearby or something but diseases that travel like smallpox, like coronavirus, like like cholera, where you can actually see it coming and you know generates this fear and panic. So so fear and panic is commonplace across you know millennia. Uh, Another thing that is quite common is the impulse to blame other people. You know, when uh, this first syphilis epidemic erupted in Europe shortly after Columbus's voyage, um, everybody named the disease for the people they had contracted it from. So, um, you know, the, the, the the French called it the Spanish disease. The Italians called it the French disease, and so on, you know, across the continent. Um, during the uh, cholera epidemics of the 1800s here in the United States, um, uh, white Anglo Saxon Protestant Americans often pointed the finger at immigrants, especially Irish immigrants, whom they believed. Tended to be um, infected with cholera, and and you know, so they were often scorned for that. Uh, during uh, so there were some outbreaks of plague in uh, in the year right around the year 1900 in Hawaii and and in San Francisco, and in those outbreaks of plague, um, whites targeted Chinese communities. Um, and there was anti Chinese violence associated with them. You know, during the, the uh especially during the early years of the AIDS epidemic here in the United States, um, the gay community was stigmatized. And so that's something that you know really persists across many of these epidemic outbreaks.
0: Um would that you say that there are any similarities with the Smallpox epidemic or other epidemics you've seen that also applies to the current um, epidemic involves the COVID nineteen virus. Um, is there anything you think that we can apply from these past pandemics to today?
1: Well, um, aside from the things I just mentioned, not not off the top of my head, but I you know I can promise there will be unanticipated consequences and 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 the consequences can be profound um, you know we've seen this in in prior epidemics you know uh, I mean there was like yellow fever in the seventeen nineties and then up through eighteen hundred eighteen o three yellow fever actually um, led Napoleon to turn over Louisiana to the United States um you know, so I, I think you know we, I, the, the repercussions are are in some respects hard to anticipate. I mean, we can all we can all try to prognosticate, you know, but I have to say my, my crystal ball is is cloudy. Um, but I, I do know there will be repercussions.
0: With that, I think that wraps up my questions. Is there anything else you would want to tell our listeners? Is there anything you would want to leave as kind of a A final note.
1: Um, I think the advantage we have today, even though the the studies are still being done and all, is that we have science. Um, And it's really important for us to respect science and learn from it and implement um, what science can teach us.
0: All right. Professor Fenn,
1: thank you for talking to us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you.